Okay, we are in a series on Ephesians. Hooray! And we've been loving this series on Ephesians. It's full of joy and goodness and life and blessing. And then this morning we come to a passage which may not leave you feeling quite that way. Uh, This morning we come to a passage that's about wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and their masters. And uh, this is a text that gives rise to to some fairly mixed feelings. So my message this morning is not going to be so simple as the ones that we've had before. And the reason that I'm on early is because you have the joy of a much longer than normal sermon this morning, though we are going to break it up a little bit as we go along. Um, Even with taking longer, I am not going to cover everything that this passage might raise. And in particular, I'm not going to get much time to comment on slavery. Uh, I have been praying, and I am expecting that this text, and whatever I have to say from it, and then going to read the text again at the end of the morning, the text is going to make you have to think. Uh, It's good to think in church, isn't it? So, Father, I pray that you would help us, especially for any weary minds this morning, And for those brothers and sisters who'd come, not looking forward to thinking, but looking forward to simply an encounter in your presence and your blessings, Lord, help every one of us, I pray. And I thank you that you care about what we think, the frameworks of thought that we have and how we respond to your word. We offer ourselves to you, Lord, and we ask that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, if you've got a phone, uh, in a minute, one of the things we're going to do to break up the morning is I'm going to ask you to vote on something at some point this morning. So if you've got a phone, can you pull it out and get the internet ready? And even as you're finishing loading that up, we're going to start to read this text. This is from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. Submit. There's a great word to start with, isn't there? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery. Uh, That word mystery means something different in the New Testament to what we often use the word mystery to mean, oh, I'm never going to get that. The word mystery here, as many of you will know, the Greek sense of the word is something that was hidden and that we couldn't have worked out, but God has revealed. So this is a profound, revealed thing. I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves In the same way, don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. Well, what do we do with all of that? Uh, Let's note at the outset that these verses do not speak to, uh, to, well, what, they, they do not speak to women and men or to adults and children, but they speak to wives and husbands and to children and parents. The word fathers can be read to mean fathers and mothers uh, as parents. And so we don't all find ourselves in each pairing. That was also true in the first century. That's not a modern phenomenon. In the ancient world, there were plenty of widows. There were plenty of childless couples. And there were lots of free men who weren't slaves but weren't masters either. These verses don't provide guidance for everyone in every position in society. They provide guidance for the household, for the family. Now, like some of you, I've been reading around this text and the other texts in the New Testament like it for years, and I'm aware of a number of different ways of reading this text. So I want to go through these things And this is where the voting's going to come in a minute. I want to know what you think. 
Um, The first way that some people respond to this text is like Thomas Jefferson. This is Thomas Jefferson's Bible. It's quite honest. And it's not even that he just cut some bits out that he didn't like. Some of you will know that what he actually had was another book into which he pasted the bits that he did like. And he made his own Bible up and published it of the bits of the Bible that he thought were worth having. Some of us honestly respond to this text by ignoring it as if it weren't there. A second thing that can happen is that we can read this as if it's all about education, because the middle one seems to be about that, children and their parents. Children need to be instructed because they're ignorant. And so the argument is made that in the time when this letter was written, that was also true of women who were not afforded an education, and also true of slaves who were poor and marginalized. And therefore, it was appropriate that they should all be commanded to follow the man, the master, who was privileged with understanding. Thirdly, another way to look at this text is that it's, it's movement in the right direction. In an ancient society where women were viewed as unintelligent and immoral and slaves were disposable, these words offer better morality than was current in the society of that day, but they're not our final resting place. It's movement in the right direction, but there's further to go towards a better morality than we find in these verses. Here's a fourth way of looking at things. Some of you will remember this from the 1990s. Goodness gracious me, uh, was a bunch of guys from uh, South Asia lampooning themselves and others. And this is them lampooning the attempts that immigrants sometimes make to fit into the culture that they've come into. So here's the the fourth thing that maybe these words in Ephesians are about making sure that you fit into the culture in which you find yourself. That Christians need to act enough like the people around us that we don't needlessly offend the people around us. And then fifthly, and there might, I, I could have put at least another one on here. I've cut the list down slightly. If this seems a little bit confusing, I've tried to uh, make it as simple as I think is helpful. Um, there's Charlton Heston with, I don't know what language that is on the tablet. Uh, it looks more like Nordic runes to me than Hebrew. I don't understand that. But... Um, God-given patterns, this is the fifth way of looking at things, that actually these verses do straightforwardly show us how it is that God wants people to relate to each other. So this is where I want you to go to the internet. If you go to menti.com and use this six-digit code, you will find six options before you for which you can vote for as many as you like and uh, you might think that there, are, there is 
merit in several of these ways of looking at things. And the sixth option that's not on here is, I don't know. And the question is, how would you read the text that I've written out? How would you read it? Which of these differing ways would you use to read it? And the results are going to appear on the screen. I really didn't know how that was going to come out. So that's, that's, that's a little snapshot of us at the start of this morning. Or at least those who've voted with us. Not far off, most of us having said what we think. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is, uh, if we can go back to the PowerPoint, is I'm going to go through these and explain a little bit more as to why different people might take these differing approaches. Before I do that, I do want to say, let's be really clear, I want to be really clear, that it matters which options we choose here. This might, this morning, just feel a little bit academic, but it matters. It makes a difference to what women suffering domestic violence think they should do. And that matters. Uh, it's not something that's just sort of out there or something simply academic. Uh, in the same way that the Bible's teaching around same-sex relationships has been taken as an excuse for, or as a reason for homophobic violence, in the same way this text has been taken as a reason for, by some men why they can beat their wife and tell her to stay and you should submit to me. Equally, the questions that now exist around particularly maleness and femaleness um, make it complicated to know quite how to express one's sexuality and gender growing up today. Um, young men do not often know how to be strongly, healthily masculine. Like, what is it to be a man today? Because what it used to be is largely described as toxic these days. Testosterone can seem like a curse or a poison more than the blessing that God made it to be if he made you a man. So let's go through these options in a little bit more detail. I do want to say that the option of cutting it out, whilst understandable in some ways, because it's a way of avoiding the issue. I'm going to put a big red cross over that. So let's not do that. And the reason for that is because we don't get to just cut some bits of Scripture out. In another of Paul's letters written to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, he wrote, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And so it's not about taking bits and pieces. You are we're landed with this choice to either take Scripture as a whole, as authoritative, or not. And so what we can't do is cut bits out. We might throw the whole thing out. I'm not going to commend that either. Secondly, then, around education. The evidence in support of this is that in the, the ancient Greek cities like Ephesus... It was indeed boys who went to school and girls didn't. And there's evidence, again, from Paul's writing to Timothy 
that some have taken to say what women were particularly, in this time, uneducated and liable to being deceived. So in 2 Timothy 3, verse 6, Paul's writing about false teachers, and he writes, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. It seems to be a statement that there is a particular problem with women who seemingly haven't had a good education being easily swayed. Um, There are problems with looking at the text through this lens. One of those is that education in ancient Ephesus didn't work like modern education does. Modern education is aimed at teaching us to read and to write and to do maths, ideally to learn to do some coding as well, and certain knowledge that will equip us for the world. That isn't what uh, Greek education was focused on. Rather, Greek schools were focused on learning specifically to speak well. They made the chief goal rhetoric, that you could stand up and speak clearly. They had classes on how to breathe properly in order to be able to speak clearly, for example, and how to memorize things so that you didn't fluff your lines. And Paul, again, writing another letter, was very clear in not rating the value of such an education. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1, he says, When he went to Corinth, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. Paul is critical of the value of that kind of education. The education that went on for young men and women outside of those schools was learning on the job. Having learned to speak well and some some basic literacy, people then learned on the job. And slaves were not simply uneducated people. Slaves could be more educated than their masters because wealthy wealthy people paid good money to own expert slaves. And not all women were uneducated. There are texts from Ephesus in this period written by women. Indeed, wealthy women needed to be literate in order to run the large households that they were expected to run. And wealthy women would therefore arrange for private lecturers to come and to give them private tuition in their homes. And that is precisely the practice that seems to be going wrong that's described in 2 Timothy 3.6, that as these wealthy women went through the normal process of having private tutors come into their home to instruct them something was going wrong with that, It's actually an evidence of them gaining an education. And we know from 1 Timothy chapter 2 that there were wealthy women in the church in Ephesus because those women are warned against wearing gold and having expensive haircuts. There was a craze that swept through the Roman Empire through the first century of increasingly elaborate haircuts to the point where you had to own a specialist slave who had the skill of making that particular hairdo work. And so these were really wealthy people that were being warned not to demonstrate their wealth in those ways, and they were in the church, women who were wealthy, and we can expect to have been educated. In sum, 
it's hard to imagine that all of the women or all of the slaves in the church were uneducated. Undoubtedly, some would have been, but not all. And there's a wider point here. Forgive me for making a more academic point, but it may help some of you. If you base an interpretation of Scripture on a view that you have of a particular historical situation to which the letter was written, then your interpretation is only as solid as the evidence for that historical perspective. Does that make sense? And uh, I do want you to know there is a lot of ongoing disagreement about what life was like in Ephesus. If you want to know more about that, the best thing I've read recently about this, there's a book entitled Women in the Church, in which there's a whole chapter in here, it's about 40 pages, that's entitled, I've got it on the screen here, uh, A Foreign World, Ephesus in the First Century, written by some... So um, the Austrian Archaeological Institute have done archaeological digs in Ephesus every year for more than a century, and they found quite a lot of stuff. Um, The guy who's written this chapter has read uh, all 6,000-plus of the inscriptions found on various bits of stone that have been unearthed and the literature. So so if you want to try and get a more authoritative view, if it bothers you that much, that you want to know what it was like then, then I recommend getting hold of this. You can get it for £6.21 on Kindle and quite a lot more uh, in a paper copy. And... I can tell you, though, that you'll end up thinking, gosh, we don't quite know, do we, exactly what it was like. And so my counsel to you is not to form a strong view of how things were based on a strong view of what the history was like. That's why I put a big question mark there now. Movement in the right direction. This is one of the couple of things that came out as... um, a strong, um, a more supported view as we did that poll just there. So just to be clear, the idea here is that the text that we've read gave women more freedom than they had in the society of their time. And so it sets an example of heading in the direction of equality. This way of looking at things is a relatively new way of reading the text, The book that brought it to people's attention was written by William Webb, published in 2001. The book was called Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals, and it introduced the really memorable phrase, redemptive movement hermeneutic, which is to say that God is continuing to bring redemptive revelation through history and has continued to do so after the time that the Scriptures were written. And so sometimes what we read in the Scriptures is just, that's the revelation, it is how it is, it's not changing, like, do not murder. Still just the same. And then there are other things where we see movement, a trajectory through the Scriptures as they're laid out in their chronological order, and that can allow us to continue that trajectory beyond what we read in the Scriptures and end up somewhere different from simply what we read in the pages of the Bible. This is quite an appealing option. 
uh, it opens up the options for what we might do with the text today. Um, the biggest challenge with this point of view is that when people use it, it turns out to be quite difficult to agree on the final landing place. How far should we go if we simply stick with the question of the way in which men and women relate? Uh, the Bible does not itself tell us that women should vote. They didn't in Ephesus. They were not part of the voting body in Ephesus. And they couldn't own property either. If I was to ask you, should women be able to vote and own property, I don't think there'd be any disagreement that, they, that, that you women should have those rights, uh, though they go beyond what we find in the Scriptures. The Scripture does not simply command those things. They are an extension beyond the, in the direction of equality, beyond what we find commanded in Scripture. If I were to say, what about husbands and wives having entirely equal roles, there would be a debate amongst us. If I were to say, does the equality, based on Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If I were to ask, does that sameness stretch as far as same-sex marriage, since male and female are interchangeable, they're, they're one, they're the same, there would also be a debate amongst us. I think it would be a slightly different debate. My point really is that it's not obvious from acknowledging that there is a movement through Scripture, it's not easy to know where, you, where it lands as evidenced by the fact that people do not agree about where it lands. William Webb, in his book, Trying to Help People Get to Grips with This Idea of a Trajectory, helpfully provided 18 criteria for trying to work it out, which I think underlines the fact that there's room for discussion. I do want to make the observation that in practice, what this approach does is it tends to prioritize the broad moral principles of Scripture and to place the specific biblical commandments underneath them in a subordinate place. It tends to value principles more than commandments. And the scriptures have both. And there's, there's more that could be said about that because Jesus also sums up the commandments in some broad principles. I'm just noting that it tends to prioritize principles and, and not so much all of the specific commandments. Here's a... Um, Oh, there's questions about that as well. Here's this thing about fitting in with expectations. Let's be clear. Uh, Ephesus was a pretty typical patriarchal Greek society. Uh, girls were married around the age of 14 and would expect to be grandmothers in their 30s. Only men were allowed to gather in the city assembly, for which the Greek word is ecclesia, which is where discussions of public life took place. 
women were expected at all times to show modesty and only appeared in public as required by their father or husband. And actually, if you um, were to read those many inscriptions that archaeologists have discovered from Ephesus, and you were to see what they said when they praised women, they consistently praise women for being modest and quiet. It was a patriarchal society. And then there was the church, the Christian community, which also took the Greek word ecclesia to describe itself. In a city where the civil life of that city was governed by an ecclesia made up of men, the church gathered and said, we are the ecclesia of Christ. And in that gathering, both men and women, slaves and free, came together and were expected to contribute. And there in that gathering, they spoke together of freedom and love, which meant that there was a lot of scope for misunderstanding. And it you, not many people rated this as a way of reading the text. But you might do a little bit more if you'd also read from Titus 2, the reasoning that Paul gives. In Titus 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes that older women should urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home. That sounds very 1950s. To be kind, that sounds eternally good, and to be subject to their husbands. And this is the key thing, so that no one will malign the word of God. Fit in, says, so that no one will malign the word of God. 1 Timothy 1 says something similar concerning slaves. All who are, so 1 Timothy 6 verse 1 All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So then, the lesson of this text that we've read can be seen as a command to fit in with the social expectations of the society around us. As one commentator has written, we should aim to be culturally normal and unobjectionable. But then applying that, the same commentator says, that means that, for example, you send in your annual accounts on time. If, you're, if you exist as an organization, as a church, and you register as a charity, you do all the things that are expected of a charity. You are culturally unobjectionable. Uh, You will have spotted, and perhaps all of you, most of you see it very clearly already since you didn't vote for this in the poll, but there are some challenges with with this way of looking at things. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it speaks clearly about not conforming to the world that we're in, so that raises some questions straight away. Um, Clearly, there are elements of the society that we're in that are just bad. (laughs) 
And, it's, uh, and if we interpret the text this way, it gives us no scope to go to today's patriarchal societies and argue for women to be treated very differently. It's also worth noting that where the New Testament does command Christians to fit in, actually the focus is not so much on fitting in, but on living good lives. So 1 Peter 2 verse 12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Okay, here's the fifth thing. This brings us to the last of these options. And some of you will be expecting me to simply say, well, uh, and ta-da. Now, I've, I've set it up, haven't I? This is the last of the options. And, and to a certain extent, I do want to say that, but not without any caveats or questions. The primary reason for reading the text in this way as giving God-given patterns, is the repeated references to Christ and to his lordship. So where it says that wives should relate to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands to treat their wife like their body as Christ does the church. Children to obey their parents in the Lord. Slaves to obey their earthly masters just as you would obey Christ. So the teaching, in the way that it's explained, is explicitly grounded in a divine reality. It's not grounded here, at least, in an argument around society, but around a spiritual reality. There are two kinds of problems with reading the text this way, in, in my view. and One of them I've already named, which is the way in which people can take parts of this, have taken parts of this text and used it as an excuse, as a rationale for domination, for subordinating people, often with violence. And the other reason, I have this conversation with different ones of you in the church from time to time, is that, frankly, this is embarrassing today. I know that there are some in the church who even find it hard at work to name the fact that you're part of an evangelical Christian church because of this. Ah, oh, so you're those ones that oppress women, are you? And you just so don't want to go there that it's a major quencher of Christian witness. So... Having gone through all of those things, I wonder what, um, whether we might come back to the temptation just to cut the thing out of the Bible. <laughs> At least that's a little bit... Can we move on, please? Next week, we get spiritual warfare and victory. So can we, let's look forward to that. Can we just move on from this and... Oh, let's cut it out. What I want to say, though, and some of you will have heard me say this before, is that it is precisely those texts of Scripture that we find most difficult that have the greatest power to change us. Because the ones that we find ourselves agreeing with, as we read verse, oh, that's great, yeah, I believe that, that's wonderful, I love that, that blesses me, I get that I'm living that out, praise God. 
Well, that's all good, but it's not, there's not much change going on in us when we, when we read those passages. But when we read through a passage of Scripture and we hit something that feels like we've just... What is this? This doesn't make any sense to me. I don't like this. I don't want this. This does not work. Those have got greater power to change us. And my prayer for this morning has been that in this text, which we will come back to reading again, we would all experience change one way or another as this text, probably at its most difficult points for us, brings about that change. I want to read to you from Tom Wright's commentary on these verses, or at least on the first part of these verses, and his commentary, Paul, one of his Paul for Everyone commentaries. Tom Wright writes this, Paul assumes, as do most cultures, that there are significant differences between men and women. Differences that go far beyond mere biological and reproductive function. That their relations and roles must therefore be mutually complementary rather than identical. And within marriage, the guideline is clear. The husband is to take the lead, though he is to do so fully mindful of the self-sacrificial model which the Messiah has provided. As soon as taking the lead becomes bullying or arrogant, the whole thing collapses. Then he says this, If this guideline seems outrageous in today's culture, we should ask ourselves... Do our modern societies, in which marriage is often a tragedy or a joke, really offer a better model of how to do it? Does the specter of broken homes littering modern Western culture indicate that we've got it right and we can tell the rest of human history how we finally resolved the battle of the sexes? Or does it indicate that we still need to do some rethinking somewhere? Um, Al, could you come and lead us in prayer? Uh, Because we're going to come back to reading the text in a minute. My prayer is that it would do its work in us, whatever work it needs to do. But I think we all need prayer. (laughs) So. I was just struck this morning... Um, about the need to approach scripture with humility and each other with love. Um, Jesus said that we would all be known as his disciples by the love we have for each other. And James writes this in his book. He says, God gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In Proverbs, it says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace but with humility comes wisdom. So I want to pray. I'm going to pray now, and then we're going to have just a couple of moments of of reflection in which you can bring your own thoughts to God, whether that's very straightforward or whether it's quite confused. You know, I'm not sure what to do with this. A chance is to bring it to God in humility. Father God, we started off this morning by saying that we put our trust in you. And that continues to be the case. Your Lord, you made this world and we look to you as the one who 
has all the wisdom. And we choose to take our place under that, to say we, we want your wisdom. Uh, we are not God. We don't have all the answers. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grant us wisdom, not just intellectual knowledge, not just revelation, but wisdom that gets the heart of who God is and knows how to apply that wisely in the world. And God, I pray as well that where disagreement on rights and values is something that fragments society, and particularly our society today in how we talk and how we act towards people we disagree with, I pray that your church would be a different place. God, I pray that you would stir us to love and to unity God, I pray that you, would, uh, that you would make it a reality, not just an aspiration, that we think the best of each other rather than imagining the worst of each other. Would you bind us together um, over agreement and over disagreement? Would you draw us into unity and into wisdom? And I pray that even now as we raise our hearts to you, God, that you would and bring your wisdom to bear in our hearts. Amen. God, we thank you that same letter of James says that if anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask you and you would give generously without finding fault. And the, the psalmist says that humble and contrite heart you will not despise. God, we thank you that you, when you give us wisdom, do not do it to, um, to find fault in us, but to bring us into truth and that that comes with blessing. We pray we'd know your blessing. We pray we'd understand your wisdom in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Al. So I said, we're heading towards um, reading the text again. Just before we do that, well, I, I do that, I just want to comment on a few uh, specifics within the text, which I think it will be helpful to, to, to do. Um, they are these. Thanks. Just a few points to note. First thing it would be helpful for us to note as we look at this text is that submission is a choice. Uh, it says in chapter 5 and verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It does not say uh, impose yourself on other people. It does not say subordinate others so that they are beneath you. It says, you submit yourself. So there's quite a big difference between uh, being made to submit and choosing to submit. And we should be very clear that what the command asks for is the choice to submit 
And it's not a manifesto for empowering those who wish to make others submit. People who have been forcibly subordinated will find it particularly hard then to choose to submit. That's difficult. People who are used to being in charge will also find it hard to submit, though for less um, acceptable reasons. (laughs) Um. Submission is a challenge to us all. Verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is Jesus Christ, who it says in Philippians 2, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He is our leader. He's the one who's shown the way. And being in very nature God, he humbled himself. He submitted himself, even to death. And we're invited to make the same choice, to find the low place and to occupy it. Secondly, uh, Can we imagine both and? Now, let me explain this. You see, in verse 21, as I've just read, it says, submit to one another. And then the the next verse says, wives, submit to your husbands. And I've lost track of the number of conversations that I've been part of and that I've heard, which have consisted of people arguing over which one of these two verses is more important. Where people have said, well, the real thing is the umbrella that we all submit to each other, and that's the real thing. And the next bit about wives submitting to their husbands is sort of greyed out somewhat and less prominent. While someone else says, well, yeah, I know we all need to submit to each other. Yeah, of course we need to do that. But it says here, wives wives submit to your husbands. And those two things, the reason that there's that kind of conversation that goes on is because they seem to contradict. One is entirely mutual thing, and the other has some directionality or some difference to it. And it's, it's a challenge to us to, uh, to conceive of how both of those things are true. Uh, but we really do need to hold them together. Actually, the word submit does not appear in the Greek of verse 22. It doesn't actually say in Greek, Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands. What it actually says, if you read verses 21 and 22, is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, women to your own husbands. Which is to say, it's all one statement. There's not two statements to be held in tension with each other, but a singular statement that ought to all find a landing place in our, in our, in our understanding. Hopefully, in saying this, I, I might succeed in calling us out from two entrenched positions to say there, there's something else that God's after for us in which both of these dynamics feature for us to discover. Third thing, The meaning of the word head, some of you will know that the Greek word here, kephale, uh, has been a subject of some debate. It says in verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Now, 
The most obvious meaning, and the one if you look up in the Greek-English dictionaries that are called lexicons that define for us as we're doing our studies of words what the Greek words should be translated into English, you will find that they translate head, or that the, the range of the meaning of that word is generally around being a leader, the authoritative leader. However, um, someone called Stephen Bedale published an article in 1954 in which he argued that it might not mean that, but that the word head might better be translated as beginning. And that then sparked a debate around whether the best way to translate that concept into English is in the use of the word source, as in the head of a river is the origin of that river. And that was how many years ago? 65 years ago, and the debates continued. Actually, uh, the debate has changed somewhat more recently, because in more recent years, in the late 1990s, another proposal was made for what this word might mean, which is that the word head is best translated as prominence. Sorry if this seems a little bit academic, but for some of you, you've read all around this already, and I'm speaking to you um, especially. Um, the word prominence is probably most easily understood by saying, if you, someone says that they've got 200 head of cattle, they don't mean there's 200 disembodied, you know, decapitated cattle's heads in a field. By saying 200 head of cattle, they mean there's 200 beasties in the field. And might the word mean that, that the head is a representative of the whole, and that in speaking to the head, you can use that way of talking to speak about the whole? So, for example, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24, it says that the man... The Adam, the Adam uh, was driven out of the Garden of Eden, but it's clear that what the text means is that both Adam and Eve were driven out of the Garden of Eden, because they're both outside and they're both banished. But the text says simply, the man was driven out. And this is a way of thinking that is not natural to us in the modern world, but was very natural in ancient societies to think of whoever was the head as being someone who could be spoken to on behalf of the whole family unit or even tribe or nation. Could it mean that? Well, it could. Uh, this issue most often gets discussed in commentaries on 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, because there's a longer discussion of head in 1 Corinthians 11. So, to give an idea of where the debates got to, if you were to go through all of the commentaries on 1 Corinthians 11 that have been published in the last 20 years, uh, you would find that many of them say the word means authoritative leader. Many of them now say it means prominence. And there's one written by Gordon Fee that says it means source. So it seems like the debate has moved on from whether head means source, to something slightly different. And if you're not aware of that debate, you might like to become acquainted with it. Um, now, this is something I've been looking forward to saying. Fourthly, husbands must die. <laughs> oh, I 
feel I can start preaching now. This is good. See, when I look around at um, men and more accurately husbands and wives, I, I can't remember the last time I thought to myself, well, if only that wife was a bit more submissive, that, I think that would be a fine thing. I, I cannot remember the last time that thought occurred to me, honestly. Um, I have very often thought to myself, wow, I wish that husband <laughs> would die. <laughs> yeah, I have. So he would, that, that men would know what it is to lay their lives down. Men would know what it is to, 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 yes, to take initiative. If we read what it says in the passage about what men are supposed to do, or sorry, husbands, let me be clear, what husbands are supposed to do, give yourself up, like Christ did. So that's an on-the-cross death giving up, hence the dying. In order to make your wife holy, cleansing her, washing her, presenting her as radiant, loving her as you love yourself, caring for her as you care for your own body. Wow, I, if only we had more of that going on. If we understood that to be, whatever it means to be the head in a relationship, it's about being a giver, not a taker. That's what it must mean, because whatever we debate scholars have about the meanings of words, when they when it goes on in the text to say what the husband should do, it's about being a giver, not a taker. I love these words uh, from um, John Chrysostom, you've probably never heard of. Chrysostom means golden mouth. And he was called that because he was understood to be the best preacher in the entire world around 400 AD. Here are some of his words uh, addressed to, to men, to husbands. Do you want your wife to submit to you as the church submits to Christ? Then take the same good care for her as Christ takes for the church. Yes, if you should even be required to give up your life for her. And yes, cut into pieces 10,000 times. Yes, and to endure and undergo any suffering, whatever, don't refuse it. If you see her looking down on you, disdaining and scorning you, still by your great thoughtfulness for her, by affection, by kindness, you will be able to lay her down. For there is nothing more powerful to sway than these bonds, and especially for husband and wife. The partner of one's life, the mother of one's children, the foundation of one's every joy, one ought never to chain down with fears and menaces, but with love. For what sort of union is that when the wife trembles at her husband? And what sort of pleasure will the husband himself enjoy if he dwells with his wife as with a slave and not as with a free woman? So yes, whatever you suffer on her account, don't lecture or chastise her, 
Because that's not what Christ did. I said to Bev this morning as we were leaving the house, well, here I am saying all of these things, and <laughs> what kind of husband am I? And she said, well, I have no complaints. <laughs> and I thought, well, well, not at the moment she doesn't. Um, <laughs> not this morning. Um, so I'm hardly speaking from a place of you know, great wonder and glory in this. There's so much more that I need to discover of what it is to be a husband. And looking out, I'm trying not to look at anyone in particular, but it's true for you too, those of you who are husbands. As I said, these verses, they don't speak to everyone in every situation of life. These are words. So if you're one of the people this morning for whom most of these categories seem to pass you by, if you are uh, a, a, a childless widow who doesn't have any slaves, for example, you know... We're going through the text, and I'm just trying to help us get to it. Um, Husbands need to die. Fifthly, two become one. This is the mystery, the revealed, profound thing. Uh, This this needs saying. You know, my parents' ruby wedding anniversary, so they've been married 40 years, just as they um, were cutting the cake, one of my cousins said... Uh, well, he said, this is a strange thing, isn't it? He said, 40 years, he said, you should have been married four times by now. By which he meant, well, you know, relationships ought to last about a decade. Two become one. It's a profound, profound mystery. And here's the last thing. Parents must teach. As I've said here, there's a question as to whether the word fathers is better translated parents, and you may find that it's translated parents in your, the translation you have in front of you. But here's the thing. Parents are directly responsible for bringing up their children. Our culture says it's normal to hand your children over to teachers for many of their waking hours. It's normal to hand your children over to teachers for the greatest part of their instruction. But this text says parents are responsible. Uh, Christian parents often work that out by making sure they leave their children in a children's church on a Sunday morning on the basis that the hour's mixture of snack, biscuits, games, and a Bible story (laughs) will uh, provide all of the instruction that that wasn't there through the 30 hours that they were with the teacher to whom the instruction's been delegated. I question this. Uh, I note in uh, Tyndale Community School that several Muslim families I've met who would likewise question it and who send their children to several hours Islamic classes after school every day of the week. Parents, we have a responsibility. (laughs) I'm going to read the text again. And I want, as I read it, not to put the text on the screen, but to have this question, where is God inviting you to change? 
I, I've talked around the issues raised in this passage with enough of you over long enough periods of time to know that I have relatively little power to persuade anyone of my point of view on them. But I do believe in the power of the Word of God. So here we go. And I think we're going to sing a song about Jesus to finish. So that's a good thing. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Parents, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him.